Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And oh boy, do we have a movie that needs more love today. In fact, I will uh, go on record and say this might be the most polarizing movie I have ever done on Staff Picks. I know some people who really like it. I know some people who hate this movie all the way down to the bottom of the darkness of their heart. It's, uh, it's a movie that uh, is all over the place in terms of uh, style and reception and opinions. And it is the 1998 comedy Very Bad Things, starring Christian Slater and John Favreau and Cameron Diaz. And, uh, oh, this is a movie I've been wanting to talk about on Staff Picks for quite a while. But I will warn you, though, right at the start, this is not a movie I'd recommend for everyone. So let me just play that card right now. I'm not telling my grandma to go see this movie. It's a little harsh. It's a black comedy would be a kind way to describe it. It's about the blackest of black comedies you are ever going to find. It may be a little much for some people. And I have a good story about that once we get going. Uh, And my guest today for Very Bad Things. I'm very excited because I found someone who likes this movie as much as I do. And uh, this is one that I, I had to get a certain type of host for because this has to be someone who kind of knows this movie pretty well. This is not a movie that you can just walk into for the first time and talk about it on one viewing. You need to, you need to kind of have grown up with this movie. It's, it's just one that floated around the late 90s, got a lot of notoriety. I've always loved it, and I actually found a new uh, – I actually found a host who loves it as well. So uh, this is his first time on Staff Picks. He's an entertainment junkie, just a man of all trades, loves movies, loves talking about them. Uh, I know him from the world of reality TV. Again, first time on Staff Picks. Welcome to the show, Jericho McCune. Thank you very much, Mario. Um, Just to supplement that, I have friends that I grew up with that desperately wanted to love this movie, (laughs) that loathe it to the very depths of their being. (laughs) Now, okay, quick short answer before we get into the plot. Why do they loathe it? Okay. Just a quick answer. Um, because I don't think they were expecting it to be this this film comes from an era where no matter what, there has to be some form of redemption. And in my opinion, there's not a lot of redeeming qualities about anybody or anything in this entire film. That's very well said. Yeah, that's uh, it's again about the darkest comedy I can think of. Can you think of any movies off the top of your head that are anything like very bad things? No, because it, it it's both an irredeemable irredeemable film, but it's also a comedy. <laughs> um, it, it you had mentioned that it, it's cut in a a very similar way to like go in some other films like that. Mm -hmm. But it's also that, um, nobody in this film is likable (laughs) at the beginning. You want to cheer on certain people. Mm -hmm. And by the end, you're like, why did I like that guy at the beginning? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that's part of what always made me laugh about this movie because it starts crossing lines and boundaries that you don't expect to be crossed in movies. And at first you're kind of shocked, and then it's doing them. It's doing so many, and it's doing them so gleefully that you kind of have to laugh in a sadistic way. Like I cannot believe this movie exists. 
Yeah, okay, we're, we'll get into the plot of this movie, which if you've never heard of this movie, you your mouth will be agape when you're listening to the storyline. Because, again, this movie could only really have existed in the late 90s when movies were really pushing the boundaries on what they could do. And this movie only exists because, because Pulp Fiction came out first, and Pulp Fiction kind of stuck its toe in the water of Marvin getting his head blown off and stuff. Would you kind of agree with that? Absolutely. Um, and I feel stylistically it owes a lot to that mid to late nineties genre of film. There's a lot, there's a lot of um, interesting cuts and directorial choices. Yeah. And this is the work of a first time director. And that's one thing we got to say right at the top of the podcast here. Uh, Peter Berg is his name. You may know him from other stuff. He did what uh Friday night lights, I believe. Yes. Friday night lights, the feel good film and long running family show about football. <laughs> And mind you, he also wrote this movie. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I don't want to beat around the bush too much. I want to kind of explain to people what this movie is about. This movie is about a wedding that goes poorly. I think that would be the Cliff's Notes version of this, where basically everyone's going to die or become handicapped, and there will be many, many tragedies. <laughs> and, and, and uh, uh, well, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just... It's a black comedy. It's really, really dark. It's like the darkest part of Pulp Fiction and none of the light parts. And it's played so silly, you don't really even know what you're supposed to be thinking. Absolutely. And the, the short bit is a bachelor party gone wrong. <laughs> so I'd like to also lead off with this is not the hangover. <laughs> this is what the hangover wants to be when it grows up. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So I'm curious about your history with the movie. I will tell you my history real quick before we get to yours. But So I saw they, they build this a lot in the late 90s on TV. There were lots of ads. It was kind of billed as this wacky, you know, dark comedy like Pulp Fiction, Go, uh, what, Two Days in the Valley, kind of all this, these little genre of movies. And my wife and I went to see it. And, oh, my God, I was so shocked by how far this movie goes in the dark comedy realm. But the thing that I always remember is that there was about 40 people in the theater at the start of the movie. And by the end of the movie, my wife and I were the only two left. And I have never seen another movie where that big of the audience walks out at certain points by the, along as the movie is going. So my wife and I were the, the hearty diehards that made it to the end of Very Bad Things. I have loved it ever since. But I am also very hesitant to, re to uh, recommend it to people because, again, it's not for everybody. I absolutely believe that that happened. <laughs> now, what was your first time? Did you see it in the theater? I did not. I saw it when, it when it first came out on video because this was about the time that I wasn't really figuring out what I was going to do with my life. I'd just gotten out of the military, um, and I was kind of wandering. But I was an enormous Christian Slater fan from the beginning, mm -hmm. like Name of the Rose era. And he he came up through Pump Up the Volume and Heathers, and he always kind of had this dark... He, he was like our generation's Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. And then when this came out, I saw, I was like, it's him. It's that swingers guy. It's like John Cusack's friend <laughs> and that chick from Something About Mary. <laughs> so I have to see it. You know what I mean? Uh, now, mind you, a lot of the younger people in your audience might not realize that in 1997 or 98, Christian Slater was a really big deal. Mm -hmm. However, 
he had also just gotten in trouble for drug abuse and domestic violence. So there was like this aura about him. <laughs> A little psychopathic, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> which will come through as we go through the movie. <laughs> uh, but I, at that point, had seen every film Christian Slater had made. And a big reason of that, I was a skateboarder and I was into the entertainment thing. Um, I wrote, do you remember fanzines? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I was big. I was the guy that always had the stack of fanzines at the punk show mm-hmm. and would just pass them out to everybody. Kristen Slater did a movie that you might want to throw on staff picks called Gleaming the Cube. I have heard of that. I've never actually seen it, though. Okay, that is it, – it has another name, um, like a brother's justice, because <laughs> they used to package movies with different names. Kristen Slater was a skateboarding pr- punk, and his brother gets murdered, and he has to figure it out. Oh, wow. So a movie where he's not killing people. That seems very rare for that Christian Slater movies of that era. Um, and then he also did a movie called Pump Up the Volume with a girl called Samantha Mathis, where he was a underground radio DJ for a high school. And he was like calling out the high school staff for what they were doing. And it culminates in this giant scene where the FCC chase him around town to triangulate his location and throw him into prison. I have a cousin named Amy. She was in love with Christian Slater. She's almost my basically my age. So she was, what, uh, about 18 when those movies were coming out. And she loved Christian Slater. So she made us watch Pump Up the Volume. I know that movie real well. But yeah, he did that. He did Heathers. And most people know Heathers where he's just a killer. And this movie is the next step where he's basically Heathers if Christian Slater was a little more sadistic. Yes. if It was, it, it, it was Heathers if it was allowed to be what it wanted if it would have came out after Pulp Fiction. That's an excellent description. That's exactly what this movie is. It's Heathers if it was allowed to come out after Pulp Fiction. Yeah, it's a sequel to Heathers because they graduated now. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, so we'll get into the plot of the movie in a second here. But there's one actor in this movie I have to point out. And the big stars, we'll say John Favreau coming off. This was after Swingers? I kind of forget. Yes, just after Swingers. Okay, so he did Swingers, then he did this, and we learned really quickly, John Favreau should never go to Vegas. <laughs> right. Well, and he also did, I think, Rudy. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. He's the fat tutor guy. Yes. <laughs> okay, so John Favreau, we got Daniel Stern, we got uh, uh, Jeremy Piven, You, as you referred to him earlier, John Cusack's friend. <laughs> right. Well, and at the time, he hadn't made a name for himself yet. Yeah, he was just John Cusack, one of those Chicago actor guys. Yes. And then we got Leland Orser. We got uh, Christian Slater, obviously. But the actor I want to point out in this movie, the one I always love talking about, is Cameron Diaz. Yes. Now, for people who don't know this movie, Cameron Diaz is the put-upon bride. Her uh, fiancé is having a bachelor party. It's all going to go poorly when they, spoiler alert, accidentally kill a hooker by impaling her on a hook. And so it will all go poorly. And by the end of the movie, she's actually more sadistic and evil than the guys who killed the hooker and have to bury her and cut her up. But I love that Cameron Diaz did this movie. And every time I watch it, I'm so impressed with her just because she was this model with limited acting experience, came into The Mask in 1994 with Jim Carrey. And she was like the big new hot thing in Hollywood. But she did not do typical roles for a first-time actress model. Like, she's doing this movie three years later. She's doing Being John Malkovich. 
she did some really weird choices for a, a model turning uh, who showed up in Hollywood. Well, the movie she did before this, the big uh, trailer scene was her putting cum in her hair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's like, and she was Bridezilla before that was a word. Yes, exactly. This is the she's the ultimate Bridezilla in this movie before anybody had ever heard that term. I mean, yeah, for her first scene is you going, why do you want to marry this woman, John? <laughs> yeah, she is. I mean, she is. Yeah, she's over the top in this movie. It's great. And, and she sells it. Yeah, she doesn't hold back. She owns her part. And you can see why she got hired after this. But yeah, that's the thing I always love. You can see why she got hired. She was a big draw in movies, but she always did stuff that was not conventional. And it's so weird watching The Mask, watching her first movie now, and then realizing she did all this really gritty stuff after that, that The Mask doesn't really fit the rest of her career path. Right? <laughs> but it was a it was a good entry. Like it was Jim Car there was nobody bigger than Jim Carrey at the time. And she pops in and she almost steals that movie. Exactly. She steals this movie. Yeah. <laughs> to me, she really owned, like, the. we'll get there, but she has the last scene of this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, we'll get to I, we're, I'm, I'm giggling because I know we're going to talk about some of these scenes here. But, yeah, Cameron Diaz is the most sadistic evil character in this movie over Christian Slater at his peak evil. So that's the one thing we we got to get across here. <laughs> Okay, so here we go. Anything else we want to talk about? Do talk about the history of this movie before we get into the uh, the storyline? Um, I I think we're there. <laughs> okay, and again, be reminded this was a first time movie by a first time director who wrote it himself. The balls it must have taken to pitch this movie as your first time movie. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and I believe he was an he he had done some acting before this. Okay, good. So he was known at least in the circles. Yes, but they were like, really? You want to direct something? <laughs> and the thing you want to direct is this? Yeah, I, I think he was in one of the uh, hospital shows. Was he in, uh, he wasn't in ER, was he? No, um, Chicago Hope. Okay. Yeah, I never watched those things, but it was in my notes. He was like one of the Chicago Hope guys. Okay, so here we go. The uh, beginning of Peter Berg, the uh, wonderful director of Friday Night Lights, and his first movie, Very Bad Things. Now, let's see if you guys can get through this podcast without walking out, just like uh, the uh, crowd that I saw it with in the theater. This is the guy who gave us Michael B. Jordan, because he came out of Friday Night Lights. So he gave us Michael B. Jordan and a hooker impaled on a bathroom hook. He's a double threat. Oh, he can do anything. Yeah, okay. Uh, by the way, before we get into it, a lot of people, I'm just defending this movie a little bit. If they know this movie and they don't like it, their their criticism is, oh, that's the movie where a hooker gets killed and they have to bury the body and it's played for laughs. And that is superficially true. That's basically the story of the movie. But that's only the first act of the movie. That's like the first 45 minutes. I think a lot of people forget there's a lot more movie after that where they're all trying to cover their tracks. And it reminds me of a movie, uh, A Simple Plan with Billy Bob Thornton where everyone just turns on each other. Yes, that, that's a beautiful analogy. Okay, but I just wanted to defend the movie, because a lot of people think the hooker part is the main part of the movie. That's not. That's just the first part. 
Yes, I I always argue that the hangover is the first half of the second act, and that's it. <laughs> okay, so here we go. So the movie starts, and it's a wedding. It's just a wedding between John Favreau and Cameron Diaz. They play characters named Kyle and Laura. And as Jericho said, Laura is the ultimate control freak bridezilla. So I will leave it to you. Kind of describe these two characters to people who have never seen this movie before. Well, at the very beginning of the film, Kyle is kind of a little uptight. Um, I, I would go so far as to say he's... Shooting above his pay grade with Cameron Diaz. <laughs> yeah, he knows he's a lucky man being able to marry this beautiful woman. Yes. Cameron Diaz, on the other hand, in her very first scene, she tells us how much she dislikes his friends. <laughs> yes. We are introduced to her explaining that she doesn't like the people he spends his time with. And she doesn't want him to hang out with them. So they're going to get married, and the first thing she will do is make him give up his entire life to conform to her. Yes. Are you sure you want to go to this bachelor party? I don't like your friends. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the timeline here. So this movie starts the day of the wedding, and it starts with Kyle, that's John Favreau, and his buddy Moore, like his best man. And they're sitting on a chair, or sitting on like a bench, and their knees are all bouncing. They're super nervous, and we don't really know what they're nervous about. And that's because the whole rest of this movie will be told in flashback, basically. Yes. And mind you, his his best friend looks beaten up already. <laughs> yes. Moore has been through some crap. <laughs> yes. Okay, so now we cut to the flashback, how we got to this part, the day of the wedding. And this is the scene you talked about where Laura, this is Cameron Diaz, is nagging John Favreau. They're like in line for their wedding license or something. And she just nitpicks him. She just nags at him. Yes, to the point where they he almost breaks down when they get to the glass. <laughs> yes. What is what is she yelling at? She's yelling at him like, "You forgot. I think you forgot to send in the the deposit to the tent people. You can't fuck around with these tent people. They mean business. I've dealt with them before. You do not cross them." Yes. <laughs> and you can see like Peterberg is so good. The people in line behind them are even getting antsy and uncomfortable at their antics. Yeah, we learn a lot about Kyle and Laura in the first five minutes of this movie. Laura runs the show. Kyle is kind of beaten down and whipped, but he knows he's lucky to be marrying this beautiful, again, Cameron Diaz, one of the hottest women in the world at that point. And so, uh, and so now she's like, you know, you need to do this. You need to do this. This is what has to happen. You need to drop your friends. Your friends are all losers. And then she's like, I can't believe you forgot the check for the tent. I bet you didn't forget the check to the bachelor party. And her, her go-to line is, do you love me? Do you love me, Kyle? I love you. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> and she's got another line here. Again, Cameron Diaz is so over the top as a bridezilla. She's like, you have to remember, Kyle, I will not be common. I am a creature like no other. Do you understand that? And he's like, yes, it's been beaten into me. <laughs> he doesn't say it, but you can see it in his, his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> John Favreau has endured a lot of this just to get to this point in the movie, but he's ready to commit to marry her. But there is a running joke in this movie where she says, I, uh, I will not be common. That's kind of like the joke in this movie as you're laughing as it goes along. She will become quite common by the end and she will not be happy. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. She will become a punchline. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so, yeah, she's very upset that he's throwing a bachelor party. And he's like, well, you know, it's traditional. It's just what we do. My boy, my buddies are throwing me a party. And she's like, well, I hate your friends. Your friends are all losers. They're not part of the big picture. And this is where we meet the five friends. And I will leave it up to you. So, or I guess it's four friends. So explain these four friends that she hates, starting with the one she hates the most, Robert Boyd. Robert Boyd. That's Christian Slater. Yeah, that's Christian Slater at his most sadistic. At his most, but when we first see him, he's selling houses, which he's a dick to the people he's selling the houses to, right off the bat. He won't even let them come on the property. (laughs) But he's also in this weird space where he's wants to be a motivational speaker. (laughs) Yeah. He's taking a self-help course. Yes. <laughs> and he's living it. Or wait, he's actualizing it. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah, he has all these catchphrases, these motivational things. And again, this will be put to black comedy later when he's he's giving out motivational phrases when they're sawing up a hooker and trying to bury her. Yes. Well, at her and her friend. Yeah. And then um, Daniel Stern, who is the skinny wet bandit for those that don't know. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy Piven are Jewish brothers that work with John Favreau. Mm-hmm. Older and younger, Adam, that's uh, uh, Daniel Stern, the older brother and Jeremy Piven, the younger. Yes. And they have one of those combative relationships that siblings always tend to have where Dan- where, where Daniel Stern thinks that Jeremy Piven doesn't have his shit together. And Jeremy Piven thinks that Daniel Stern is always riding his ass. And there is one other difference that the older one, Daniel Stern, is married. He has a wife and a family. And the younger brother thinks he's become boring since he's been married. So there's a lot of tension between these two brothers. Yes, and he's married to, is it Gene Triplehorn that's his wife? Yeah, Gene Triplehorn, who is great in this movie. Yes, and he has two children, uh, one of which is disabled. Mm-hmm. that are constantly fighting. <laughs> yeah. This, this movie is not a good commercial for marriage. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> not even a little bit. <laughs> um, and then there's the last friend that you just don't really get anything from. Yeah, that's the one uh, Cameron Diaz says uh, more. He's just weird. I don't like him. He never talks. He's just kind of off-putting. He's a mechanic played by Leland Orser, who I don't really know, but I know he's kind of a big deal in certain movies. But, yeah, he's the fifth buddy. Yeah, he's one of those guys. He's uh, William H. Macy before he got famous, (laughs) where you're like, oh, that guy. Yeah. So this is the crew. You got Adam, the old guy, Daniel Stern, who's married with kids. We have John Favreau, who's getting married. He's the one, the recipient of the bachelor party. We got the younger brother, Jeremy Piven. We got the uh, hot bag of gas, Cameron Diaz says, Robert Boyd, that's Christian Slater. And then this weird guy, Moore. And they're about to go to Vegas for the big bachelor party. According to John Favreau, he reminds Cameron Diaz that he didn't write a check for the bachelor party because they set it up. They're paying for it. It's all their idea. Yeah. And we do see Boyd, uh, Christian Slater, selecting and paying for the hooker himself over the phone where it's $900 for just dancing. Anything else is extra. Yes. Yeah. So he knows very well what's going on. Oh yeah. Yeah. Boy knows exactly where to get a a prostitute. Yes. And this was in the days before you could look it up on the internet. Exactly. Before the glory days of Craigslist. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> there, it was just, he was familiar. <laughs> to the point where he called her personally. <laughs> which is an important plot point later. That's a good point. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yes, he calls her personally and sets it up so he doesn't have so she doesn't have to give a cut to her pimp. That's a, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the detailing the uh, economics of the prostitute trade for my listeners. Well, just in case they didn't quite understand them. <laughs> yes. Okay, so uh so yeah, here's the five guys. They're going to drive out to Vegas. Again, this movie's set in Southern California. It's like a 4-hour ride to Vegas. It's not that far away. In the, the minivan. In the minivan, yeah, this is okay. So we get the scene where they're setting off, and they go to Adam's house, who's the older brother, that's Daniel Stern, and they all pile into his minivan, and his kids are fighting on the lawn. It's just a funny little dichotomy of these five guys getting ready to go to a uh, Bacchanal orgy out in Vegas as their wives and their kids are fighting on the, on the lawn. Yes, and his wife continuously screams at them not to smoke while they're smoking. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's great. Again, this movie, it's it's... It's just a lighthearted comedy. That's the one thing you've never seen. It. You, you will not believe it. It's just played so silly for how dark it's going to get later. But yeah, they're all smoking, getting ready to get in the van to drive to Vegas. And there's going to be a lot of bad shit happening in Vegas in about four hours. And she's very upset. And she's concerned they're going to smoke in the car. That's her big concern. Yes, because there's nothing worse. <laughs> While Kristen, or, yeah, Kristen Slater is standing there with the cigarette, we're not going to smoke, and then gets in the van. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, right off the bat, you can see that the wives are not quite ready for where this is going to go. And you see Cameron Diaz just furious that her man is going off to his bachelor party. But, you know, she can't control it. This is what just happens. He's got one more day of freedom and then he's all hers. So she's she's willing to bet he will be good in Vegas. He will do the right thing for one more day. Yes. And then, of course, the brothers fight the whole way to Vegas. <laughs> yeah, they well, there's two things in the car as they're driving. The older and younger brother, Piven and and uh, Daniel Stern, are uh, fighting in the car. But also, Cameron Diaz is nagging John Favreau. I forgot about that. That the chairs, <laughs> the chairs, the gold chairs have not been paid for or something. Well, she wants to make sure they have cushions. The one she saw did not have cushions, and if he loved her, he would make sure that they ordered the ones with the cushions. So this is the whole drive is all the all the guys are doing guy bachelor party stuff as Kyle's on the phone talking to the cushion people because his why is uh, his fiance is nagging him to make sure that he has some balls and stands up to these cushion people. Yes. And they don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> OK, so here we go. We get to Vegas. It really is just the five guys. It's a very simple plot. It's easy to talk about. But they get to Vegas. We get the Vegas montage where they go and gamble and there's debauchery and. What else? What, they do a lot of stuff here right at the start in Vegas, right? Yes, but I will tell you, this whole, the opening scene of Vegas feels exactly like they took it directly from Swingers. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's like, to me, it's like when I when I watched it this last time, because you had mentioned Swingers um, when we had first started talking about this movie, mm -hmm. and it looked like somebody had tried to replicate Reservoir Dogs inside Swingers. <laughs> Like the part where they're all walking down the street in the line. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like that's shot for shot when they first hit the uh, strip. They're walking down with their suit jackets on, looking all fly. 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, he watched a Tarantino movie before he shot this. Yeah, I was going to say, it's really hard to overstate how uh, important those big movies in the mid-90s were to the later 90s movies. Like Swingers, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. Like, again, one begat the other. There's This movie doesn't exist with those. That's one thing we definitely want to mention to you, that this movie exists in a certain point of time when movies were made in a certain way, and there's reasons why. Um, it, it was that late MTV era. Definitely, yeah. You know, um, a little off topic, but like even WWE was doing their attitude era. Um, magazines of the era were those guy mags that were full of attitude. And of course, the TV shows at the time, like the Jerry Springer show, which was the most hardcore talk show ever. And like this was just a hardcore movie or hardcore era for entertainment. That's all, the only way you can really say it. Yes. They were trying to push boundaries to see how far they could go. Yeah, this movie goes the furthest. We'll just say that. <laughs> okay, so so we're in Vegas, and all of them are doing guy stuff, and they go up to, like, the Rain Man suite, and they have this huge suite upstairs where they can watch live boxing and do drugs and drink. It's this huge little bachelor party moment, and there's a little scene here that makes me laugh when John Favreau calls home to talk to Cameron Diaz right before the stripper gets there, and he's like, I love you, I love you, blah, blah, blah. And she's got a little wedding play set that she plays with where she puts it where all the guests are going to be. <laughs> yeah. I love that little detail. Yes. And in the background, they are doing more cocaine than is humanly imaginable. Everybody but Kyle. Kyle's being very good. Yes. Because you want to root for Kyle. <laughs> yes. And there's Cameron Diaz on the phone playing in her little action wedding place that works. And she literally will place where each person's going to be at her wedding. She's such a control freak. And again, you kind of want to root for her. Maybe this wedding's going to work out. And again, nothing's going to work out in this movie. Don't get attached to this stuff. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to point out that at the beginning of this movie, it doesn't seem as absurd as it becomes. Yeah. It, it, it does feel like at this point, Peter Berg is trying to ground us in reality. Like, all of this could very easily just be happening right now. Yeah. And you've seen this movie before. The guys go to Vegas for a bachelor party. Something bad happens. Yes. I mean, of course, at this point, we'd seen it before with, like, Bachelor Party with Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah, very similar movies. <laughs> okay, so... so uh. Right before the stripper gets there, we have, uh, you know, the three young guys are all partying, doing coke, and Moore is jumping up and down on a glass table. It's just just chaos. And the older guy, Adam, this is Daniel Stern, kind of pulls Kyle aside, our main star, and says, you know, after you get married, you'll have kids, and your life changes. You have responsibilities. And it's a very heartfelt discussion about how Kyle wants to do the right thing, wants to raise his kids morally and ethically responsible. He's going to do the right thing as a father. And this will be... The last time in this movie you see anything regarding ethics. Um, I, I'll disagree, but we'll get to it. Yeah, I know, because I know why. Da yeah, Daniel Stern tries to be ethical at certain points in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he is the voice of reason. So, and then Kobe Ty shows up. Yeah, so here we go. So here comes the stripper, this little tiny Asian woman. She was a real-life uh, porn star named Kobe Ty, although she has a, a different name in the credits. Did you see she changed her name for the movie? I did not. It's like Carla Scott, which I think is her real name. I read that somewhere. Okay. I can see that. <laughs> but when she pops up in the movie... You can tell she is a stripper or porn star in real life because she's very much into this role as she starts grinding all these guys in their seats. Yes. Now, 
fun little fact at there there's two songs during her stripper era the very first song is a song called dirt the band's name is death in vegas okay that's good so <laughs> I, I just thought that was kind of fitting <laughs> what's the name of the second song like hang me on a meat hook or something <laughs> right <laughs> I, I i don't know because it wasn't uh memorable enough but that one really stood out to me because i was listening to it, it was like i it, it was a relatively big song in the 90s in the club scene okay <laughs> and so when i when i heard it again i was like i want to look that up and it just stood out to me i was like oh my god death in vegas <laughs> that, it, it, like peterberg had to know <laughs> Okay, so here's where we get a little delicate with our descriptions on staff picks. Where, So the stripper there, her name is Tina, and it has been negotiated that they get lap dances for free, but any other sexual services after that, that's between the customer and her. They have to work it out themselves. And, you know, she's all over the young guys, and then she gets to Kyle, John Favreau, and she's grinding him and lap dancing him and basically doing whatever she can, got her breasts in his face. But he says no. That's the good thing, Jericho. He says no, he resists her. Well, because Kyle does the right thing. He does. He's the good guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but not everybody in that room is going to do the right thing because off to the side, there's Jeremy Piven who plays, uh, what is the character's name, Michael? I think Michael. Michael. Yeah, so, uh, so first, Kyle says, I can't sleep with you. I'm sorry. I love you. You're very beautiful. I love my wife. I promised her I wouldn't sleep with a prostitute. And she like gives him that wave off, like whatever. And then she goes over to Michael, and Jeremy Piven is more than happy to uh, – drive the bone home here basically in, in lack of a better term he's like let's do it let's do it i'm real horny let's do it right now so they work out a deal and they go into the bathroom together and everybody starts cheering yes um and then while they're going at it and mine is five hundred dollars mm-hmm. and he is confused because he thought it was paid for mm-hmm. but i think his penis gets the better of him and he just goes for it is I believe right as they're getting into it, Daniel Stern goes through the glass table that we were talking about. Not Stern, it's uh, Moore, Leland Orser. Is it Moore? Yeah, Moore goes. So yeah, so it's kind of again, this is a very pulp fictiony scene. There's a lot going on at once, a lot of energy, a lot of music. They're jump cutting between Jeremy Piven and the hooker in the bathroom, and the guys out in the hotel room. They're watching MMA. So we see a lot of shots of guys grappling with each other that look very similar to Piven and the hooker in the bathroom. It's kind of artsy. And Kobe Ty is selling it, the girlfriend treatment or whatever, because she seems to be really enjoying herself. Oh, yeah. Enough so that they're slamming back and forth into things. They slam into the wall, and we get this visceral shot of a robe hook going straight through the back of her head. And then Jeremy Piven finishes. <laughs> I mean, it's paid for. Why not? <laughs> right. He doesn't even realize what happened. It feels very like, like the end of clerks where you find out that she finished with a dead guy. And again, this is very Pulp Fiction. Marvin getting shot in the face, Jeremy Piven having sex with a hooker accidentally impales her on a robe hook right through her head, the back of her head. It's it's not especially graphic yet. It will get graphic later. But she's just hanging there, dead, and he finishes, and the whole scene wraps up, and then the guys out in the hotel room hear the scream as Jeremy Piven realizes what he just did. 
Now, mind you, when he comes into the room, he 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 explains it all as, guys, I messed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, guys, I made a boo boo, and they're like, "What do you mean you made a boo boo?" Oh, I accidentally impaled the hooker. (laughs) I think she's dead. She's hanging from a hook off the wall (laughs) by her skull, and you think she's dead. I, I just looked at my notes here. The exact word is. I bumped her. I bumped her head. <laughs> and the older brother, yeah, the older brother Adam's like, you didn't bump her head, you moron. You impaled her. That's not a bump. <laughs> so yeah, the older brother and the younger brother start slap fighting, basically. And again, this is a comedy. It's played for laughs. I mean, very much so. Yeah, because it, it feels like a continuation of the fight they were having in the minivan. Mm-hmm. Despite there being a dead hooker on the floor, blood everywhere, and everybody else flipping out. Those two are fighting with each other. <laughs> yeah, and you, you said she's on the floor. I forgot to lo- mention the graphic scene where all her weight is supported on this robe hook, and she falls off face first onto the floor with the hook sticking out of the back of her head. Then the blood starts coming out. Yes, the hook comes off the wall. She doesn't come off the hook because they have a debate about whether to take the hook out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... At this point, we have a problem. We have these five guys in a bachelor pad in Vegas. There's cocaine all over. Um, if the cops come up here, they're going to see all the drugs. You could theoretically probably call this in to the cops and say it was an accident and get away with it. But because of the drugs, they'll get in trouble. So these guys are a little panicky. Again, these are just like suburban guys. Yes. Although, again, Kyle, he knows what's right and what's wrong, and he wants to do the right thing. So he's going to go call the police. Yeah. So... We break down into two teams here, basically. We have Kyle, who wants to call the police, the good boy. Adam, the responsible older man, who wants to call the police as well. And then the three younger guys, who are going to be swayed by Boyd, the psychopath, who basically reminds them, guys, remember, in life, there are always options. (laughs) Yes. And I think this is the first time he gives a true motivational speech. He really goes into it. But he becomes the impetus for the very bad things. This, mind you, was a complete accident. Um, and I read an article where a lawyer said that Jeremy Piven would not have gotten put in jail for this. Yeah, that was uh, Alan Dershowitz. That was one of the uh, OJ lawyers, if I recall. Was it? Yeah, he. it was Alan Dershowitz used to do a thing where he would go through famous movies and talk about legal issues. And this is one of the first ones he talked about where he said um, very bad things, where they accidentally killed a hooker. Technically, they would probably be able to get off for, you know, accidental manslaughter. It was an accident. There was no predetermined motivation. But they did have drugs there. So that's what they'd get in trouble for. Right. Yes. But the actual there was no murder. Yeah, there's no murder. This is not a premeditated crime. But none of these boys are thinking that far. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you go in their shoes. If you're a guy in Vegas, you're part of a party that accidentally killed a hooker, you may not be thinking straight at that point. I mean, in their defense. Yes, and one of the beautiful things about Vegas is it's surrounded by thousands of square miles of desert. (laughs) Yeah. And where else do you bury a body? Exactly. Yeah. So that's Boyd's plan. We can just dump her out in the desert. No one would know. He's like, I called her personally. No one knows she's here. There's no pimp. We could take her out to the desert, bury her. No one would ever know. We could get out of this scot-free. 
And this is where they start voting. They break down into teams to decide what they're going to do. Like, because what else would you do in this situation but decide democratically? <laughs> yeah. So it's really desert or police. That's the decision at this point. And the two moral and ethical ones, Adam and Kyle, say police. Boyd says desert without a fact or without a question. Michael, the one who killed her, says desert because his butt's on the line here. And we kind of have more in the middle, the weird one, who initially votes for desert. And eventually the three convince the other two that we should all do desert. And it goes five to no, five to nothing. Yes, because I think if I remember correctly, Boyd reminds Adam that it's his little brother's ass on the line. That's a good point. Yeah, Boyd knows how to sway the brothers. Yes. He like he is nothing but a master manipulator. So you can see why his job is selling houses in the late 90s. <laughs> and I should point out here there's a little inside joke here that uh so Boyd starts directing them how they're going to cut up the body, how they're going to get rid of it, how they're going to, you know, escape from a murder scot-free. And, and Adam, the older brother, is like, Jesus Christ, Boyd, have you done this before? And that's like a little inside joke to Heather's where Christian Slater literally did do this before. Yes. He was asked that same question in Heather's. And in neither movie did he answer it. <laughs> yeah. So Christian Slater is surprisingly good at the dead body removal job. And he gives a great speech. I wrote this down one down word for word because I like this one. All right, here's a Christian Slater speech. The, re the reality, guys, is you take away the horror of the situation, you take away the tragedy of the death, take away the moral and ethical implications and all the crap you've had beaten into your head since grade one, what are we left with here? It's a 105-pound problem. <laughs> he's like, 105 pounds, that's got to be moved from point A to point B. And he's like, a straight line is the fastest way between two points, and I can see this straight line even if you guys can't. So he's like, he's got it all set up in his head, how they're going to cut this body up and get rid of it out in the desert, and no one will ever know. And then, hotel security. The plot twist. This is where the very bad things is going to start. Yes. Hotel security shows up. And becomes friends with them when he realizes that it's just a small group of guys acting a fool, and they all promise that they'll calm down. Yeah, so talk about this guard for a second. He's a, this big, burly, black guy, real young, just comes in, and they're kind of intimidated by him at first. He's going to discover the body, but they charm him. He doesn't actually, he actually isn't mad at them. He's like, oh, you guys are having a party, whatever, and I think Boyd slips him some money, right? Yes. Here, I, I I didn't get a close look, but he, he, I'm betting it's a $100 bill. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hey, we'll take care of this, right? And he's like, yeah, man. Oh, this glass table's a problem. But they charm him through that. Mm -hmm. Boy. Like, we'll pay for yeah. – yeah, we'll pay for – I'll pay for the damages. Everything will be all right. We're going to quiet down. And then the security guard looks in a mirror. And in the mirror – he sees Kobe Ty's head bleeding on the floor. <laughs> yeah, the the classic dead hooker in the mirror giveaway. And they they were almost out of it. The, the security guard catches a glimpse of the dead hooker. It's like, what the hell is that? And he walks over, and all the guys start panicking. Go, oh, we were going to call the cops. Oh, oh, we were going to do it. And they all are losing their heads. But luckily, there's one member of the party who's very clear-headed in what has to be done, and that's Boyd. Yes. So the security guard goes in and, again, it feels like a real security guard in that he's trying to herd the people back. He wants to assess the situation, see what's going on, 
and do do his job correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, he even corrals the boys. Hey, you guys stay out there. I'm going to go in here. Y'all need to shut up. Realizes the girl's dead. Gets up. Goes to go to the phone. And Boyd has discovered a uh, corkscrew. <laughs> yeah. In the champagne uh, bucket. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot of black comedy in this movie that I think works. This is the one that I think maybe is a little too harsh for it to be funny. This is probably my most difficult scene in the movie. Yeah. Okay, so I'll describe what happens. Uh, Christian Slater comes at the security guard. He's, again, just this nice young guy who isn't mad. He's not going to turn them in. He just wants to help this poor woman in, who's hurt on the floor. And Boyd is going to shut him up. So Boyd takes a corkscrew and stabs him right in the heart, right through the breastplate, and just repeatedly starts stabbing him. And the guard starts screaming. And basically what happens is the four, five guys push the security guard into the bathroom with a dead hooker, stand up against the door so he can't get out. And we basically have to listen to this guy die for like two minutes as he bleeds out and screams inside. Yes. Um, what was the movie where it, it reminds me of a scene where I think it was a Monty Python skit <laughs> where the guy gets hurt and he's like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine down here. Send me a rope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The guard, cause the guard is asking for help. Help me, help me. And they won't, they won't let him out because Christian Slater has convinced them that this guard gets out, we're fucked. So they have to listen to this guy bleed out in the bathroom. And it's really, again, this is the scene, I think, where, if I remember, people started walking out of the theater. Yeah, there, there's one part where they think he's dead. And then he rams into the door again. Mm-hmm. And then it gets worse from there because he starts begging. And when he starts begging, I can see 90% of viewers being like, this is too much. Yeah. <laughs> like not somebody, one of those five people should stop this right now. And this is only the beginning. We are not to the really horrible parts of this movie yet. I should point out. No, we're only about a half an hour. in. <laughs> <laughs> so the guard dies, this nice young guy, he dies in there and uh, they kind of peek in the bathroom after he screams out and he's laying in the bathroom and the, the bath, he's laying in the bathtub and the bathroom is just covered with blood now. There's no way they could possibly clean all this up, I don't think. It's such a mess, and there's blood all over the bathroom. And uh, Christian Slater is just like, well, we're all in it together now. We're all conspiratorial. And he's like, uh, new plan. He's like, well, maybe maybe just the old plan, just two bodies now instead of one. And the other guys are just like in shock. They have no idea what's going on at this point. Yeah, this feels like a, a scene out of like Breaking Bad where they just – don't they even go and get suits? <laughs> yes. they. Okay, there's a montage here. That, Where they go to the hardware store. Yeah, yeah, okay, we'll do two montages. So Boyd basically tells them, you know, we're all in this together now. We can't say any of us is innocent. We killed this guard. Uh, and uh, Yes, we killed this we guard. We killed, yeah. Adam, the old brother, still wants to call the cops. And Boyd says, touch that phone and I'll bury you with it. So Boyd is now threatening them as well. And this this is the motivational speech I think you mentioned earlier. Where he says, uh, surrender is no longer an option, gentlemen. This is Christian Slater. We do this now. We keep our cool. We get through this. Understand not my words, but follow my orders. Let me be your success coach. Yes. (laughs) And really from that era, there was very 
few better choices than Christian Slater to sell this Boyd dude. <laughs> yeah, like we're we're laughing. This isn't especially funny if you think about it, but the way it's presented on screen, I just have to laugh at the audacity of it. Like really, that's where you went. <laughs> They're playing it like a self-help movie. This is how we get rid of the prostitute and the and the uh, the security guard. Follow my mantra. We'll be we will succeed at this. We will be champions. Yes. <laughs> and then, like you said, we have the montage where they're sawing up these bodies <laughs> and scrubbing the walls and like because the wall it's one of those almost self-cleaning bathrooms where you just go in there with a hose and spray <laughs> down all the tile and. <laughs> Yeah, my, my wife was watching this with me the other day, and she's like, there's no way those five idiots clean that bathroom that well. There's no way. She's like, I've been married to a guy for 30 years. There's no way these guys could clean that bathroom. Oh, no, there is DNA evidence in every bit of grout in that place. <laughs> yeah, but we skipped over the Target montage where they go to Target. They, they buy all the supplies, and this is such a Reservoir dog scene. They're walking slow motion through Target, buying suitcases, shovels, you know, plastic rain slickers, gloves, an electric saw. It's just, it's just, there's so much implication what they're going to do, but it's, it's done with so much style. You just kind of admire it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And it, it's still got that kind of glossy look, you know, it, it, it feels like a, uh, bookends where it's the, the outro montage of the Las Vegas Mm -hmm. trip you know what i mean like it bookends them coming in and going going gambling and hitting all that it it feels very similar like they're hitting the same beats it's just suddenly very different <laughs> yeah they're we get a montage of them cutting up the bodies and it's not it's somewhat graphic it's not as graphic as i've seen some horror movies with them taking an electric saw and sawing body parts off and putting them into suitcases and like jericho said as they're leaving the hotel it's just they're playing the exact same happy vegas music but they're all kind of looking around wheeling these giant suitcases out on these tra on these little carts just it's a little different and I, and i will say like when they're cutting up the bodies a lot of the camera work is from like the back upper corner of the bathroom so so you you become disconnected from this very dark problem. <laughs> it's the God cam. God is watching and judging. Yes. <laughs> yes. But it, it 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 feels easier. Okay, we've now that we're past that, we can fix things. <laughs> yeah, things will be fine. And so they go out and dig their holes. Yeah, this is an interesting scene because this scene is played so comedically. It's got this light bouncy music. It's got just uh, you know, funny dialogue as they're trying to figure out which parts to bury in which holes. And I know Roger Ebert in his review absolutely hated the scene, that it's played so comedically. And that is, that is where this movie becomes divisive. Whether you think this is actually funny or not at this next scene. Well, and it, it helps the comedy that you all of the body parts are wrapped in dark plastic or extra layers of plastic. So you see the shape of a head, but you don't see a head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not as graphic as you think it would be. Yeah. Yeah, so you're allowed, it almost feels like you, if you have the kind of dark humor that we have, mm -hmm. you feel like you can go ahead and laugh at it because it, it's a bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so here comes the humor. They're all out in the desert, the middle of the Las Vegas desert out by Red Rocks or whatever, somewhere out there. And they start digging these huge holes. Now, I don't know how long they were there because those holes would have taken a long time to dig. Yes. Digging holes that large, no less, 
like I live in Ohio. Like we have regular dirt here. It's a chore to dig a big hole, like post holes for fences and that kind of thing. They're digging in hard pack desert that's been in the sun for 10,000 years. <laughs> yes. Like, and I don't see any big giant break, like the big breaker bars that you use to break up the dirt before you dig it out. Ah, yeah. They're just using shovels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think Boyd would have at least had the foresight to get a backhoe or something. <laughs> right? But no, they're, they're four, five relatively out of shape dudes that are just kind of like getting by. They, they all have office jobs or at that level. And they're digging at least four foot holes. Yeah, that was minimum five hours out there, maybe longer. Yes. Now, to their credit, it's very dark out there. Yeah. We got plenty of time out here in the desert. Now, there's a conversation to be had here. But I want to go back to reminding everybody that the brothers are Jewish. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of jokes about that up to this point that would have trouble getting over nowadays. Yeah, I know specifically when they're driving to Vegas on the uh, on the original drive, uh, Adam's driving fairly slow, and Christian Slater in the background says, "You cheap Jew, you won't even drive the speed limit. You're just you're just you play it safe in life everywhere." So that's it's become a plot point that the brothers are Jewish. Yes, and to some credit, the brothers are particularly Adam jokes back. Mm-hmm. Like it, 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 Kristen Slater isn't saying it with malice. It's just a sign of the times. It's just how guys talk to each other. I mean, at least at that point. Um, but it's also important to remind us that they're Jewish because Adam decides that this is very important all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, so here we go. Like I said, the, well, this is the scene that will make or break you if you think this movie's funny or not, where Adam, they're about to throw all the body parts into this hole, and Adam's like, wait a minute. You know, in the Jewish faith, you must bury the body intact. You can't spread the parts around because the soul has to be able to connect up in heaven, or the soul will never rest in peace. It's a very big part of Judaism. And everyone's like, fuck you. We're not going to put the body parts back together. And then someone, Christian Slater, even says, she was Asian. The hooker was Asian. They don't have Jews in Asia. But then we have a long debate if they do, and it turns out they actually do have Jews in Asia. So it's entirely possible this hooker might be Jewish. Yes, and mind you, Jeremy Piven, this is where he first kind of really, he chimes in. He's like, they don't have Jews in heaven, and Jeremy Piven's like, well, yeah, they do. Or not Jews in heaven, Jews in Asia. Yeah. <laughs> and Jeremy Piven is like, I, I, I have to side with my brother on this. Yeah, so- so this is where Adam lays down the law. He's like, I am not flexible on this. We will put these bodies back together. So it's the big comedic dark comedy scene where they have to scramble the bodies or unscramble the body parts and put them back together so they can bury them intact. Yes. Of all the hills for him to die on in this movie, <laughs> this is the one he picks. And Adam is upset because they're being rather flippant where someone takes one of the heads in a plastic bag, throws it to someone else and says, heads up. Adam's like, no, we will not do that. This is very serious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have to unscramble the tiny Asian woman and the really large black man and put them back together. And, again, they're all in plastic, so it's not especially graphic. It's very a very silly comedic scene that, again, Roger Ebert hated that it is in this movie. Yes. And I also think 
it, it helps remind us that Adam has a conscience. Mm-hmm. He's the um, one. Yeah. He, 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 yeah, he is easily manipulated by his friends, but he has a conscience and he keeps reminding us that he wants to do the right thing. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of consciences, so the bodies are buried and, uh, you know, they're all just mortified what they've done. They've killed a hooker, a security guard, cut them up, buried them in the desert. This is so not their typical weekend. They, you know, they're a little shell shocked. And here's Christian Slater again with a self-help mantra saying, now guys, allow me to be the first to say that what we have done here is not a good thing. Clearly not a good thing, but given the circumstances, it was the smart play. <laughs> yes. I'm proud of each and every one of you. It's going to be okay. He's proud of them. Uh, it, it's all about perspective, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is right to an extent. I have to say that. He is. He is. And the thing has been done. You know, um, and everything they've done up to this point makes it worse so you might as well just be happy that they did the thing and it's done and they got away with it they did and it does there's a nice little capper at the end where kyle this is john favreau says i think we should say a little prayer over the bodies just say some words like i don't really know what to say i'm not religious he like starts praying but he doesn't know what to say so they call him pathetic and everyone argues again but then kyle does come out with the prayer where he says please forgive us god i have a wife that i love I want to be positive for society. If you forgive us, we will never forget this tragedy. So he tries to make peace with God, and he vows to always do the right thing after this. Yes, and the boys listen to him. Yeah, there is a chance we may get away with this. Yeah, and better yet, there is a chance we might not end up in hell, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which the Jews are pretty, the, the two Jewish boys are probably better off on that, going, you know, we don't have that concern. But... Our hell is inside of us. <laughs> yes. And so these are the words that Kyle leaves them with. They all go back to Los Angeles to meet with their wives and live with what they've done. Kyle says, God, this will be a daily reminder. We are on this earth to do good, not evil. Yes. <laughs> um, and then we have to be reminded before they make it back to L.A., they, they stop and do their things. And we I get another call from Bradzilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is this one? Cameron just asked, did you guys have fun? Did you have fun, honey? Did you do cocaine? Yes. What did you do? He's he's very down here. He is not interested in having a conversation about what happened in Vegas on the way home from Vegas. <laughs> I love the little joke. Again, little silly things in this movie that to make me laugh that makes this movie more fun than it should be. They're all at this car wash on the way back somewhere around Barstow in uh, in California. And they're all just horrified by what they've done. And they're sitting there in sullen silence as their car's being cleaned. And Boyd is off to the side playing Mortal Kombat. Yes. And he's like gleefully ripping people's spines out and laughing. And they're like, this Boyd is a little more hardcore than we are. Oh, yes. <laughs> and remember, Boyd is the one that Cameron Diaz dislikes the most. She, she would not be surprised if they came home and told the story. She'd be like, yeah, that sounds a lot like what I'd expect out of Boyd. Yes. Like, I, I think she doesn't hate the rest of his friends. She's just not fond of them. <laughs> Boyd, she loathes with every fiber of her being. Yeah. And we're going to have a nice payoff to that later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So here we are back in uh, California, and this is where Adam, the older brother, Daniel Stern, starts having an attack of the conscience, like you said, like Jericho said, where he's like, do you think that man that we killed, the security guard, do you think he was a father? Did, did he have kids that he may have left? And they're like, no, fuck it. There's no way. He's too young. And Adam's like, it's possible. He might have had kids. So Adam is already starts mind starting to spin with how he's ruined somebody's life, ruined these kids' lives. Like a, a hooker, that's one thing in his mind. But like a family man, that really bothers him. And the other guys already realize Adam's going to be a problem here. Yes. And I, I think it really, because we, we still have a wedding to do. <laughs> <laughs> of course. This is not even the biggest event this week. This is where they make the deal. They make the deal here. They get back. They pull up to Adam's house, and Boyd makes the promise. Remember, nobody says anything to anyone about this ever, right? And they all agree. And with that, we go back to our lives, and it's time for the rehearsal dinner. And, of course, at the rehearsal dinner, Adam starts to crack. Because I think they found there's a news story, right? We've already got the news story about the dead guard, and we found out he did have kids. Yes. That's right. Um, And... Boyd very much notices this. Yeah, so basically there's a missing persons report out in Vegas, and they see it in the newspaper, the security guard's missing. There's No one knows it's a murder yet, but Adam is really starting to snap. And is this the, the wizard scene? Yes. Okay, explain the wizard scene where Adam absolutely loses it for the first time. Yeah, well, Adam, of course, is a family man. He's got a wife and two kids, and... They're all in the minivan. I believe it's on the way to, is it even on the way to the wedding rehearsal or is it just an off scene? I think it's the way to the rehearsal dinner. Yes. So his kids are in the back seat and they are acting a fool with the non-handicapped boy picking on the handicapped boy about being handicapped a lot and the handicapped boy fighting back even harder. The wife is flipping out and he just wants them to shut up. (laughs) And he screams at them. So in order to placate them feeling bad, she says, when he goes inside, he'll get you some candy. And they want, now being from the West Coast, what is a wizard? I've never seen a wizard. I think they made it up for this movie. It's probably Twizzlers, which are like a processed licorice, but they just changed the name for the movie. It's just licorice candy. Okay. So we'll, we'll assume that it's that. It, but they start beating on the windows even. We want wizards. We want wizards. And it's this staccato beat that just helps drive the fact that Daniel Stern is not having a good time with this. He was going to pay at the pump, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he was going to pay at the pump and get out of there. But the wife says, go inside, get your kids wizards. They want this candy. And Adam is freaking out. And he goes inside and... And inside the mini-mart, he sees all these people looking at him, and he thinks that they know he killed somebody. So it's just a spiral of paranoia and stress and pressure, and he just is about to lose it. He's going to crack. He's the one out of the five that's going to crack. He goes back in his car. Uh, didn't He doesn't even buy the wizards, and the kids start booing him and screaming at him, and the wife yells at him. Yeah, they didn't have wizards. Yeah, so it's just terrible. Adam's all going to snap. There's so much pressure on him. And what does he do? He drives out of the gas station real fast, slams on the brake when he accidentally hits somebody. And his no is his wife breaks her nose against the dashboard. Yes. Yes. Two black eyes taped up nose. Yeah. So poor Jean Triplehorn will have a broken nose and the black eyes, the rest of the movie, although she is going to have some a better scene later. So wait for that. Oh, she has one of the most fantastic scenes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So here we are at the rehearsal dinner. This is uh, Laura and Kyle's wedding with these five guys in the wedding party, knowing they killed two people in the desert. They think they may or may not get away with it. They're very nervous. They're uncomfortable being around each other at this point because it's still very fresh. Very fresh, and they're not entirely sure they can rely on each other to keep the secret. Yes, and now we've seen on the news that one of the people is presumed missing. The police know one of those people have disappeared. So here's the rehearsal dinner. And all throughout the rehearsal dinner, there's Cameron Diaz trying to, you know, placate everyone and say hi to everyone like the bride does at her wedding. And she notices the five guys are all acting squirrely. And she's like, what's up? Why is everyone so fidgety and nervous? And they won't answer her. And she notices that Adam keeps going outside because Adam needs a fresh breath. He's get feeling trapped in here. She's like, why is Adam leaving? And it will culminate in the five guys all going out to argue and yell at each other in the parking lot. Yes, but we also have to have Cameron Diaz judge the way they're dressed. <laughs> That's right. She dresses that when they start first get in there, she fixes all their tuxes the only the, the way that only she can by nagging and nitpicking and pointing out their terrible style. Yes, because this movie is not about a dead hooker in Vegas. It is about Cameron Diaz's perfect wedding. Come hell or high water, she is going to pull this wedding off. This is all about Cameron Diaz getting married. Everything else is incidental to her having the perfect wedding. God damn it. Yeah, that's what I think people miss. They say, oh, it's that movie about the dead hooker that they play for laughs. I'm like, no, it's about Cameron Diaz doing everything she can to overcome the dead hooker. Yes. She is. She has been promised this wedding since she was a small child. This man is supposed to love her. This wedding will be perfect. In her own words, she is not common. She will not be common. She is a creature like no other. Yes, and this, so this wedding will not be common. <laughs> yeah, so here we go. So all the guys are outside in the, in the uh, parking lot yelling at each other. Just you can see the pressures getting to them. Cameron Diaz comes out at one point, yells at him to shut the fuck up. And then when she goes, when she leaves, this is where we get the tragedy where uh, I'll, I'll leave you to describe this one. The story arc of the two brothers will come to a abrupt end. Yes, well... I believe this is where Adam threatens to turn Michael in. Yeah. Adam can't handle it. He needs to turn in his younger brother. In order to keep his sanity, he's going to turn in his uh, turn in his little brother. Boyd, of course, is the voice of reason. <laughs> and the the final decision is that Michael needs to go home because he's acting a fool. Because he's tripping out, too. He's like, oh, my God, I killed her. You know, so they get Michael into his car and he leaves. Well, we haven't seen Michael breaking down as much, but Michael has a big breakdown in that vehicle. And I'm assuming he's pretty drunk. He looks over, sees his brother, sees his brother's minivan and decides, you know what? Fuck that minivan. And just hammers the gas to destroy his brother's vehicle. Yeah, the older brother's minivan has been a point of contention among these guys the entire movie. It's the symbol of growing up, getting married, selling out, becoming a pussy. They all hate his minivan. So Michael, the younger brother, decides in one last fit of rage, I'm going to smash into my, mother, my brother's minivan just to show him what I think of him. Yes, and Adam, of course, decides that if he gets in the way, Michael will stop. Michael is drunk and stupid and Adam jumps in the way I, I, I 
to me, there there was kind of a mental struggle here where Michael really believed Adam was going to dive out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Adam really believed that Michael was going to make a sharp left. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a planned murder. Yes. What happens is they're playing chicken and both lose. Michael just obliterates the bottom half of Adam into this van. Yeah, this is in a very abrupt scene. I remember in the theater being kind of shocked because they tipped off a lot of the plot twists in this movie in the trailers. They did not tip off this one where, yeah, the one brother goes to smash into the other one's minivan. Daniel Stern jumps in front of it to protect his minivan and Piven does not stop. And just, I mean, one of the hardest collisions you've ever seen in a movie, just plow right into Daniel Stern, just that one brother obliterates the other one. Yeah, he folds. The front of him just folds over top of the uh, hood of this vehicle. And he kind of like, and then sets back up. Yeah. And we, it's, it's very abrupt and very horrific, even, even for this movie. So of course the entire wedding comes out or the entire rehearsal comes out. And the, the big plot point here is from where Janine Triplehorn goes over to like, Oh my God, you're my husband. And this is happening. And he whispers something to her. Well, that's, that's the hospital. We're combining two scenes. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. So, so we cut right from this. Yeah, we cut right from this scene in the minivan to the hospital where poor Daniel Stern's laying, dying in the hospital. He's, he's it, he has no hope. He's gonna die. And right before he passes, he asks to talk to his wife. And the four other guys look as Gene Triplehorn goes over and talks to Adam, and he whispers something in her ear right before he passes. And they're all like, "Ah, oh, shit! He just confessed about the murder, didn't he?" Well, and I think we get a close-up of Boyd at this point, where we see that Boyd really noticed that. Yeah. And that's the thing with these four, these five guys. They're all worried they're going to snap. They're all worried they can't trust each other to keep the secret what they did in Vegas. But they're all secretly a little scared of Boyd, who has crossed the line into full-on murderer slash psychopath. And when Boyd sees Adam whisper to his wife that he maybe did something in Vegas, we know that wife's days are numbered. Yes. And, you know, it, it, it didn't help that Boyd has already threatened to murder. Them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boyd is someone you don't want to cross. Christian Slater in this reaches a new level of depravity and evilness as they're all just terrified what he's capable of. And we know that Gene Triplehorn now kind of knows what happened, perhaps. And so the next scene is them at a diner, the four guys talking what they're going to do. And Boyd's like, well, you know, we'll take care of it. Just trust me. I'll get us out of this. And you kind of know where this is going. He's going to go kill the wife. And so now it's going to start crossing lines you shouldn't cross because Boyd will not get captured. He's not going to jail. But we have a scene here at the funeral first where Michael snaps at at his brother's funeral. Yes. This is where he actually screams, I killed him. (laughs) Yeah. Michael starts screaming, I killed my brother. And all of a sudden the other three guys are like, no, stop, shut up, don't talk. Yes, he has a complete breakdown in the front line of this funeral uh, party. And is it uh, Charles, the Leland Orser guy? Moore, yeah, they call him Moore. Yeah, Moore and uh, Boyd drag him out. (laughs) On the way out, he grabs onto Gene Triplehorn and won't let go, screaming in her ear. (laughs) Like... Again, it's dark in the most uncomfortable, like, if this is so uncomfortable for her. Yeah. A fist fight. Daniel Stern's funeral, there's a fist fight with all the brothers, or with all the, uh, the conspirators. 
Yes. And it, it felt like an I drunk I love you man moment <laughs> between uh, Jeremy Piven and Gene Triplehorn, but it's in the darkest of ways. I just murdered my brother and your husband, but he won't let go of her. It, if you watch, it takes them almost a whole minute to get him extracted from her. <laughs> Yeah, yet another scene that Roger Ebert really hated in his review. He's like, the fist fight at the funeral. Like, it's played for laughs. It's supposed to be silly. It's just slapstick violence at a funeral. And he's like, I just found it distasteful. I do not, I, that scene was embarrassing to me. That's what he said, which I disagree. But this is, yeah, again, not a movie for everybody. Yes. Many, not, not everybody. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. It's going to spiral down now. As uh, Again, we're not going to have many characters left at the end of this movie. Sorry to spoil it for you. But so now uh, Kyle goes to Cameron Diaz, his, his fiance, and says that we need to cancel the wedding. It's too much pressure. You know, we're just, everyone snapped. Adam just died in a freak accident with his minivan. And Cameron Diaz says, hell no, we will not cancel this wedding. All the deposits have been paid. We are locked and loaded. You, be, you better be there on the wedding day because this is going fucking through, you idiot. So Cameron Diaz lays down the law. And Kyle is more scared of her than he is of Boyd, I think. Potentially with good reason. Yeah, I agree. I would be too. <laughs> yes. Um, but we're not done with Adam's family yet either. Oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. I'll set you up for this one. So they get a call. Kyle gets a call one night from the wife, Jean Triplehorn. This is uh, Adam's wife. And she's like, you know, I found a confession. And, and Kyle's like, what confession? She's like, before he died, he wrote out a confession of what you guys did in Vegas I need to talk to you guys right now. So it's like, oh, shit, we're in trouble. The wife knows she's going to call the police, but she's giving them a chance to explain it before she calls the police. And this will not work out well for her, but it culminates with the four of them going to Lois's house, attorney Lois. And uh, basically, it's basically a setup so Boyd can get her alone and murder her. Yes. Um, and nobody knows that. <laughs> Except Boyd. Because... A, a big part of this, too, is sold as Jeremy Piven trying to reconcile with her. Uh, and, of course, he's still just completely destroyed. Like, this man is not together. <laughs> yeah, this is poor Jeremy Piven. He does a good job acting in this scene. And I, we have a fun moment here where they're in the house. And uh, and she's like, I want to hear from you four boys what happened in Vegas. And Boyd's like, well, Lois. And she's like, not you. You shut up. I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> but she zeroes in on Michael. Poor Jeremy Piven, Adam's younger brother, her brother-in-law. What happened? Because she knows Michael will tell the truth eventually. Michael kind of does, but then walks it back. Because Boyd ends up cutting in and saying he was sleeping. What, was it Boyd that cut in? It's Kyle. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's okay. right. It's Kyle that cuts in and says Adam was sleeping with prostitutes. Yeah, I really like the way the scene is shot. And again, for as distasteful as the storyline is in this movie and as goofy as some of the choices are, this scene has real tension. And I like the way the scene shot where, yes. where Lo Lois is interrogating Jeremy Piven. And he's like, we were bad. We were bad in Vegas, Lois. She's like, why? What did you do? And he's like, we were really bad. And Michael's about to crack. And what I love about this scene is if you look right behind Lois, right behind Gene Triplehorn, there's Christian Slater holding the kitchen knife. He's kind of sliding it in and out of his sheath. 
And you know the minute Michael admits what they do, then Boyd is going to kill Lois and probably kill Michael. So it's very tense. And at the end, Kyle, Kyle jumps in to break the tension. Yes, that's what threw me because it felt like it should have been a Boyd line. But Kyle points it out, and Boyd just slides that knife back into that butcher block. <laughs> yeah, that is a great scene. Again, that's that's why I think this movie shouldn't be overlocked, little moments like this one. But yeah, John Favreau tries to do the right thing. He doesn't want to see Lois stabbed. He doesn't want to see Michael stabbed. He's like, your, your husband, Adam, he slept with a prostitute in Vegas. That's what we did. That's what happened. That's why everyone's so nervous. We didn't want to tell you. And, and she seems to buy the story. Yes. And then, of course, Boyd doesn't stab her with a knife. Instead, he stabs her in the heart with words when he's like, yeah, he's had this problem for a while or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, that's his addiction is sleeping with hookers. Yeah, it's a, it's a rough one. So poor Jean Triple has a breakdown, although she avoids her murder. She's not going to be murdered by Boyd. And they all agree, we'll just leave you alone here. Uh, you know, you have the two sons that are always bickering. Uh, one, the handicapped one and the, the non-handicapped one, they're always fighting. Kyle says, we'll take them, me and Laura, we'll watch them, even though it's right before our wedding. We'll take them off your hands. So basically, Laura, uh, Lois is left all alone. And this is where the bad part happens, because even though Boyd has temporarily held her off, he knows it's not going to hold. He's going to come back here later tonight and finish the job. Yes. They split up into two groups, with Boyd, I believe, taking Michael home. He takes Michael, yeah, he takes Michael home, and then uh, he takes Kyle home with the kids, the little, the two, the Adams kids, and I remember there, the two kids, the fighting kids are in Cameron Diaz's house, and one of them smashes into her little wedding playset, and she's very upset. <laughs> yeah, so everyone, the guys all take Michael out to get him drunk and make him forget about his problems, and Boyd slips off on his own to go visit Lois. And he uses the excuse that he's going to try and help her. Yeah, which, I don't know why they buy that. I don't know why she buys that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she does. And we've already sold that he kills her, but I have to say there is a good amount of tension about here about whether he'll be able to. This is such a fun scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gene Triplehorn is nothing but a brawler in this movie. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. This movie will catch you off guard. You know where it's going. Everyone's going to die. They're going to turn on each other. But when Christian Slater goes to murder Gene Triplehorn, this scene does not go anywhere near where, the way you think it's going to go. No. And I'll, that, to me, there's a few great fight scenes in cinema that are from films that aren't blockbusters. Mm -hmm. Like, um, They Live. Have you? Do you know that one? Oh, yeah, Roddy Piper. With Roddy Roddy. Th that fight scene that's like seven minutes long, and they're legitimately like just wore out in this fight is one of the most. And then um, another Christmas Slater movie, true romance. Mm, which fight scene where Patricia Arquette in the bathroom. Okay. I don't know that movie all that well. I'm trying to remember that scene. Okay. She, she ends up taking the back, the uh, lid off the back of the toilet and using that as a murder weapon. Mm, okay. I would put this up here with those fight scenes just because Especially for this movie, it's so out of the blue. And you expect him to just smother her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he's okay for people who haven't seen it. He sneaks up into her bedroom. She's laying there with like an ice pack over her eyes. Just this poor, lonely woman who's had her 
husband die in the last day and she's her kids have been taken away she's been through hell christian slater sneaks up into her bedroom in the middle of the night with a pillow he's gonna smother her but the the plot twist that it takes is he starts smothering her and she pushes him off because she knew he was coming and she's like you picked the wrong woman motherfucker and then beats the shit out of him (laughs) yeah she really does this is a great scene this is a good two minutes of gene Triplehorn turning into bruce lee and just kicking the ever-loving shit out of christian slater with like kung fu yeah and this is where the makeup department gets paid because he picks up scratches he lives with for the rest of the movie yeah it's great oh that's the thing all the best stuff in this movie i like the the dead hooker scene just because the way it's shot but all the really fun stuff is after the murder like this fight the scene with christian slater in the knife sheath in the kitchen the, but this fight is a big standout to me. Yes, and if I if I re- remember correctly, she even goes to smother him at one point. Yeah, she almost smothers him. And that's the <laughs> thing. Throughout this whole fight, Christian Slater has no chance. She just beats the ever-loving shit out of him. She, like, throws him through a window. She tries to smother him. She bites him in the testicles at one point. Yes. And he's, he's trying to get away from her because she's nuts. Uh, but he ends up succeeding. Yeah, off camera. We never see him kill her. We just see a – he calls Kyle later and says – yeah, Lois has been taken care of. So we never actually see how he somehow beats her, but he does. And the result of this for our lovely Cameron Diaz is that she now has two children. <laughs> so Boyd has killed Lois, killed Adam's wife. And Boyd has a new plan how he's going to explain how Lois is dead now, because Boyd always one step ahead of everybody. He says, we'll get the younger brother, Michael, get him drunk, bring him over here. I'll write a fake suicide note that he loved Lois and that's why he killed Adam. And then I'll shoot Lois and I'll shoot Michael. And it was a love triangle. So Boyd is always thinking 3D chess here. So basically he takes out the entire Burkow family just to hide the crime. And that's where we lose Piven. Yeah, Piven has been, they get him drunk, they drag him in, Boyd shoots him. And basically it's explained as a love triangle. So at this point, there's only three guys left. There's uh, John Favreau, you got Moore and you got Boyd, Christian Slater. And uh, and like you said, this is where we learned that Cameron Diaz has now inherited two kids because they were in the will. They were supposed to inherit the Burkow children. So now she's a mother. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, this is where we also learned that they left them five hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yes. But after fees and expenses and this and that and everything, you get about 14 grand. <laughs> yeah. So the morning of the wedding, Cameron Diaz's wedding. She learns she would have inherited all the stuff by the death of the Burkow family, but uh, all the taxes and over fee- overdraws, all the fees, they don't get any of it. Uh, Adam had this huge life insurance policy that he lapsed. He forgot to make the last payment, so they get none of that. So basically, you get no money and you inherit two kids, and she's pissed. And to make matters worse, uh, this is now where Kyle finally comes clean, man. <laughs> He's like, hey, look. After all of this trauma, maybe we shouldn't go to do this wedding because we also murdered a hooker and a security guard and buried them in the desert. Yeah, this is great. Again, this makes me laugh. I can see how this wouldn't be everyone's sense of humor where he confesses. We killed a hooker. He, kills, he confesses to Cameron Diaz. We killed a hooker, and, uh, and that's what happened. That's why everyone's so squirrely. And she's like, wait, you left a dead prostitute in the desert? And he just says, well, she's not alone. yes but let's remember this is a movie about cameron diaz's perfect wedding she doesn't care about a dead hooker in the desert 
he doesn't care about an entire family that has died to cover up the secret. What she cares about is that there's a wedding about to happen, and if Kyle doesn't shut up and show up, she will kill him. Yes. She literally threatens murder. She's like, uh, I told you, no bachelor party, no Boyd. You were warned. She's like, I have waited 27 years for this moment. I have focused and I have prepared just to walk down that aisle. This will not stop me. I will not be derailed. I will not be embarrassed on my special day. You will be there. I will not be denied. And this is where you start to see where Cameron Diaz is vicious. She literally is the scariest one in the movie. Yes. Like, you were starting to root for her because she was the only good soul left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was a mean, nasty bridezilla, but, like, it was just about her wedding. Other than that, she had done nothing wrong. (laughs) Now, she's just straight up, no, I don't care. You can be a murderer. That's fine. Shut up. I don't care. Get ready. Go get dressed. Just don't embarrass me on the day that I have planned out with my action wedding playset. Yes, there are three of you left. The three of you will stand up there. (laughs) Even Boyd, even though she hates Boyd, and even though he is a murderer and will probably murder someone else in the future, she doesn't care because he's in the wedding party. He has to buck up and get through this. Yes, he is a warm body. You don't get five anymore, so you're already mismatched when it comes to bridesmaids versus groomsmen. And here's her quote as we flash back to the forward, we flash back to the present. She says, Kyle, listen, tomorrow I am walking down that aisle come hell or fucking high water. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then Moore and Kyle sitting on a bench, not looking enthused about life. The first shot of the movie. Now we understand why they're so nervous on the day of the wedding. They're scared of Laura and scared of Boyd. They're scared of everybody now. Yes, we also see why they look exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they've had a rough week. Yes, Um, but Boyd is not done yet. Boyd knows there's money to be made out of all of this. Yeah, okay, let me me summarize that, because I had forgotten this part until I watched it this last time. We're in the last 10 minutes of the movie here, but... uh, But it's a very busy 10 minutes. Yeah, it's a very busy, a lot's going to happen in the last 10 minutes. We've got to get rid of some characters, but... uh, so Boyd is there the day of the wedding, and he's like, you know, we did it, guys. We made it, and more, and Kyle are like, shut up. This is We're still going to get caught, and, and Boyd's like, well, you know, there is something I do have to bring to your attention. I understand that Adam had a life insurance policy when he died, Mikey, or not Mikey. I keep calling him Mikey from uh, Swingers. He's not Mikey. He's Kyle. <laughs> Kyle, I, know, I understand you inherited a bunch of money. Uh, a lot of that inheritance should go to me because I did all the work to get rid of Adam to help you out of this crime, so you owe me some money. And Kyle's like, fuck you, you're crazy. And this is where they start getting in a fist fight, where Kyle and uh, Boyd start scuffling. Yeah, and it's not nearly as good a fight as uh, him and Gene Triplehorn. <laughs> it, it is, but it has a good surprise ending. And that is? That is where Cameron Diaz comes in, and the day of her wedding sees the groom and the best man fighting, and she's like, don't fight, this is my day. And she pulls out a coat rack and smashes it into Christian Slater's face and basically destroys him. And Cameron Diaz is no longer even a little bit of a good guy. No. She's, she's so angry that they're fist fighting on the day of her wedding. She basically turns Christian Slater's face into a pulp and kicks him down the stairs and says, this is my day. Yes. And then goes back to the wedding. 
right back to the wedding, right back into wedding mode. And she just tells her husband, Kyle, she's like, take Boyd, stick him in the crapper and get your ass upstairs. We're getting married. <laughs> yes. And they do. Yeah. To her credit, she was not denied. She gets married. And Kyle walks down the aisle. And in a fun little callback, at right before the wedding procession starts, you see the crowd, like, figuring out where to set. And they're kind of annoyed because this is taking a little bit long. Mm -hmm. And there's an old woman that is just not enthused about her seat not having a cushion on it. And she's trying to figure <laughs> out what to sit on. I didn't catch that. Oh, my God. That's so great. And then the wedding happens. Yeah, the wedding happens, and we only have uh, Moore and uh, and Kyle, and Kyle gets married. Although, we do run into a little twist at the end because, uh-oh. Moore doesn't have the rings. <laughs> it's a problem. It turns out the bloody-faced pulp of a man down in the basement, Christian Slater, has the wedding ring, and Moore has to go get it at the last minute. And, and Laura is very upset she doesn't have that ring ready. <laughs> and that's a, I think that's his best scene in this movie. Who, Moore's? Yeah, and it's very short, but it's just him realizing he's got to go reach into Christian Slater's pocket. So Christian Slater has had his face beaten to a pulp. He's down in the basement. He's crawling up the stairs. He's going to go kill everybody up in the wedding. Moore opens the door to go get the ring. He knocks Christian Slater down the stairs, and that finally kills him. And then Moore has to go grab the ring out of his jacket. Yes, right at when Christian Slater hits um, the landing... There's a nice sound cue that is, I think, signifies his neck snapping. Ah, okay. <laughs> I think that you have to listen close for it. But I think sound was made as, because this is a, a movie that gives you a lot of hints. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, technically Moore killed Boyd. Yeah, Moore kills Boyd, and right when... When Boyd hits the ground and his neck snaps, you they cut back to the wedding, the chapel, and you just hear Moore scream, Ah, Jesus Christ! Yes. <laughs> but anyway, that's the wedding. It's a happy wedding, and Moore comes back with the ring, gives it to Kyle. Kyle puts it on Laura's finger. She gets her wedding, and at the end of the day, all's well that ends well. And if this were a happy movie with perhaps a less ballsy director, that would be the end of the movie. <laughs> so... Um, Cameron Diaz, her thought patterns are not very, maybe she disliked Boyd because they were so alike hmm. because Cameron Diaz decides that Moore needs to go now because <laughs> he's the last remaining, uh, witness to everything that's happened. <laughs> I don't even know if it's so much. He's a witness. He's just Kyle's only friend left. So just get rid of all your friends. That's what I told you at the start. <laughs> I I think that's a better thing. <laughs> But we're, we're sold as he knows what's because she doesn't even know that Moore ultimately killed Boyd. <laughs> she thinks she killed Boyd. So, yeah, she has instructions for her new husband. She's like, Boyd is down dead in the bottom of the church. Take him out to the desert, bury him with the hooker. And while you're out there, kill Moore, too. And then she's like, you know, just for good measure, we inherited a, a dog from Adam's family when he died. Kill the dog, too. Just kill everybody. And poor Kyle's like, wait, kill the dog, too? Yes. <laughs> and so they go out, and we get this great scene where you know it's going to happen. It was almost Sopranos-esque, mm -hmm. I'm going to say, of more digging the hole and Favreau 
behind him or Kyle behind him, like amping himself up to murder his only remaining friend. Yeah, this is a tough one because Kyle has technically never killed anybody yet in this movie. No, Kyle has really kind of been the good guy. Mm-hmm. He's an irredeemable good guy, <laughs> but he is still it's his hero's journey we're undertaking. Well, again, as, as like, like we like he said at the funeral, remember God, I am here to do good on earth, not evil. Every day of my life, I will be reminded of that if you forgive me. So he wants to do good. Yes. And this is where is this where Moore mentions Moore keeps mentioning the good he's going to do from now on. Yeah. He wants to join the Peace Corps or something. Yes. Because of Kyle's speech. You know, and I think this is the this time he said Peace Corps. Earlier in the movie, he had mentioned something as well. But this is his his thing is, you know what? You're right, man. I am going to go do this good thing. So, you know, cut to us finding out that the the John Favreau murdering more was kind of of a, a fever dream, <laughs> and really. They just buried the body and they're on their way home. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Cameron Diaz has sent her husband out, her whipped husband out with one mission, kill more, kill the dog. She says, uh, you're going to need to start flushing the toilet like a big boy. (laughs) And then she's like, do you love me? Do you love me? If you love me, you'll do this. And so we turn out Kyle cannot, he's raised the shovel. He's going to kill more. He can't do it. And we learn that at the end of the day, Kyle has finally done the right thing. As he promised God, he has stood up to his wife. He has not killed more. He has not killed the dog. And you think, all right, we might have a happy ending after all. Yes. And then our lovely hero, Kyle is rewarded by slamming head first into another car in does he go out the window? Yeah, straight through the windshield. Yes, goes straight through the windshield. Him and Moore and the dog <laughs> are all in this horrible but non-fatal car accident. Yeah, this one is especially brutal, just like the Adam one earlier with the minivan, where they're just driving. It's just Kyle and Moore and the dog coming back from the desert where they buried Boyd. And it's very understated. Moore just says, well, that ought to be the end of that. And Kyle's like, yep. And we're like, yay, happy ending. And then Kyle, as he's driving, falls asleep because the week has been so exhausting, crosses the center line, goes headfirst into another car, right out the windshield. And uh, and now we end with the final scene of the movie, which is Cameron Diaz's new hell. Yes, because God was not punishing John Favreau. God was punishing Cameron Diaz. <laughs> Yes. John Favreau seems to be having a hell of a good time as a quadriplegic <laughs> in the backyard taking care of his two ornery as hell new sons, <laughs> trying to make men of them, while the handicapped son makes fun of him for being a quadriplegic, and he falls out of his wheelchair. I think the dog's even back. More is not just a quadriplegic. He can only move his wheelchair with his mouth. Yeah, I think, okay, for, for to put a picture in people's heads, John Favreau, because of the accident, I believe he's paralyzed from the waist down. So he's in a wheelchair now. Well, he loses, he loses his knees down. Oh, yeah, that's right. He has no legs. Yeah. Okay, so John Favreau is now in a wheelchair. Moore 
has gotten the old Christopher Reeve treatment where he's paralyzed from the neck down, can only breathe with a tube and move around in a wheelchair. So there's two new handicapped people in this family, plus the handicapped son they inherited, plus the other son who just makes fun of all the handicapped people. And then on top of that, the dog lost a leg in the accident, and the dog is hopping around like a tripod, a three-legged dog. Yes. <laughs> so these are Cameron Diaz's all her new five dependents. Yes, and she comes out the back door of the house to complete chaos. <laughs> like, John Favreau is on the ground trying to crawl across it without any legs to help a young disabled boy who is making fun of him for being disabled while Moore is in the background and somehow he got his tongue stuck on his remote thing and his wheelchair is just spinning in circles <laughs> while the dog hops around and yells at everybody. You cannot believe this scene if you have never seen it. And this is the movie. This is the scene that really wins me over. Like this movie perhaps crosses some lines of good taste. It shouldn't. And perhaps it's a little too sadistic. But the ballsiness of this final scene where Cameron Diaz, whose whole whole life is being around, revolves around being special, not being ordinary, is now special and ordinary. She's a housewife. She's cleaning the house. She has five handicapped, you know, dogs and people that are dependent on her. She's just screaming. She cannot handle what has just happened to her in her life. And then at one point, the little kid in the, uh, the crutches goes to John Favreau and says, I hate you and your bitch wife. And she just melts down. She has a complete breakdown. Yeah. If you made it through 97 minutes of this 100-minute movie, mm-hmm. if you made it 97 minutes and then don't laugh at this scene, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Because <laughs> And then she runs into the middle of the road. She, she runs out the fence and into this middle of the, middle of the road. And she's doing the run with the floppy arms. (laughs) Like, she can't even be bothered to run away. She just knows she's kind of limping away. This will be the hell of her life for the next 40 years, and she knows it. She puddles into the middle of the road, screaming and sobbing and crying. And her neighbors are just kind of, and we just pan out to that God view again, right up into the crane. (laughs) My God, that ending. This is a Cameron Diaz movie. It's it's like in Silence of the Lambs. Hannibal Lecter was only in something like 18 minutes of that movie. And people don't realize that. Cameron Diaz is not in nearly as much of this movie as the any of the five guys. Mm-hmm. But this she kills this movie. This is a movie about her. It's like a video game where something bad happens at the start and you have to beat a series of bosses to escape and you get out of it scot-free. And Cameron Diaz is the ultimate boss that Mike, that Kyle must uh, defeat at the end. He's got to defeat, you know, Adam and Michael, his conscience and God, Moore, the dog, Boyd eventually. But then there's the ultimate boss, Cameron Diaz, and he cannot beat her at the end. But it doesn't matter because her life is ruined. She is now ordinary and not special. And it's just such a such a fitting little twist for this movie at the end where she just is laying there crying in the street, knowing this is now the hell of her life and she can't do anything about it. And since you hate her so much, it's just it's such a uh, I don't even know the right word. It's not a schadenfreude. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a wonderful turn for her where where she ends up. This is and this is the kind of movie. Not only do I love this movie, mm-hmm. um, but 
Do you know who Rachel Talalay is? I don't know. Okay. Do you remember the movie Tank Girl? I, I know Tank Girl with Lori Petty. Yes. That is absolutely easily my top five, probably my number one favorite comic book movie of all time. Okay. It is ridiculous. Ice, Ice T dresses up as an anthropomorphic mutant kangaroo. <laughs> Right. I would love to, and she, uh, Rachel Talalay directed it. Um, I would love to see her make Cameron Diaz's perspective of this movie. Mm. Yeah, it was really interesting. I was looking, I was trying to read a bunch of interviews on this, about this movie, and it's not a movie that was surprisingly, it was not very well covered by the press. Nobody wanted to talk about it after it came out. But I would love to hear what Cameron Diaz thinks of this movie because, again, I've said it at the start. I am so impressed that someone with her background, limited acting ability, a model, you know, grew up selling weed or buying weed from Snoop Dogg in Long Beach. She's not really like your typical Hollywood actress. She's kind of showed up and was the flavor of the month for a while. And then she would do these ballsy roles like this where she made herself look so nasty and ugly and mean-spirited like that was so not the typical career path for someone like her. So I just love that she was in this being John Malkovich. And I would love to hear her thoughts on this movie one day. Um, I did find an interesting, uh, John Favreau used to do a show called dinner for five. There's an episode of that, that Peter Berg is on. And one of the conversations is about this, hmm. but generally speaking yet, yeah, nobody talks about this movie. <laughs> Because ever in all of these actors, now we kind John Favreau, of course, is enormous, as is Cameron Diaz. Mm -hmm. But the rest of them are kind of, they've had their moments and people remember them. But when this movie came out, every one of these actors had another movie that came out almost immediately before or immediately after mm -hmm. that they were able to just overshadow this movie with when it came to interviews. And again, because it was not widely loved by the press or the audiences, it's one of those movies they may be a little embarrassed to have on their resume, which I, I if you were a big mainstream star, I could see that. But like, like if I were Cameron Diaz, I would love this movie. I'd be very proud of the work I did on this movie. Yes, but at the time and because of the way the press it was getting, I'd probably much rather talk about being being John Malkovich. Of course. Yeah. Or something about Mary. The, the, the one that I had goo in my hair. Yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would love to see the whole cast get back together and do one of those, uh, like, the stage interviews. <laughs> Too bad I couldn't do one of those things on, like, when they did uh, the COVID, the, all the quarantines, where they do the actors go on Zoom and do a script reading. <laughs> I want to see a live script reading of very bad things with all the original actors. That would be fantastic. <laughs> I hope, I hope Kobe Ty is available. Yeah, and then afterwards, do an hour of questions. <laughs> yeah. But again, this is just one of those weird little niche movies, late 90s, could only have existed in the late 90s. And I remember, again, we saw it in the theater in Kirkland, Washington, and everybody walked out. And I was so amused that everybody walked out. Like, people are taking this movie way too seriously. That was my opinion at the time. But we got to that final scene with Cameron Diaz spinning and yelling and falling down in the street. And I was just giggling because I could not believe this movie existed. <laughs> and I bought it. This is like one of the first 10 movies I bought on DVD in the late 90s. And I still have it. I don't watch it all that often. It's not a movie you really watch all the time. But it's like, I'm so glad this movie exists, even though it's like, it's not for everyone. But I just like that it's for certain people. Yeah, it's, there's definitely a niche here. Mm -hmm. And 
if if people haven't seen it and they're introduced to it, it to it through this podcast, they'll have a better understanding of what a, what they're getting themselves into going into it. Because I a big problem in '97 or '98 was that people really had no clue that they were getting into something like this. <laughs> yeah, I was watching the trailer. The trailer really tries to pass this one off as a wacky comedy, which it is not. Oh, that, yes, no. <laughs> Hijinks do not ensue. Darkness that is funny ensues. Yeah, a very bleak black comedy, which, again, I like that kind of comedy. Jericho obviously likes it, too. But if you don't, you know, I, we've given you the warning. Don't don't go rent it and, and be, hey, that movie was too dark and bleak for me. I'm like, I, I kind of warned you. Yes. And like to think, Peter Berg then followed this up with uh, The Rundown which was The Rock and uh, Sean William Scott. Oh, Stifler. St- that's what I was going to say. Stifler, yes. The Rock and Stifler in the Jungle. Wow. Have you seen that? <laughs> I have not. Was that before American Pie? Because this movie was before American Pie. No. It took him like five years to make another movie. <laughs> okay. Surprisingly, yeah, very bad things and not catapult him onto the A-list. He he also tried a TV show called Wonderland, hmm. which I do not remember whatsoever. I never saw it. It only lasted like three episodes, uh, but it might be worth looking up. But because from what I understand, it was removed from TV because it was just way too dark. <laughs> oh, the hell you say that the director of very bad things could go too dark. <laughs> right. You know, just watching this movie and talking about it. It just strikes me that I know you and I love this type of movie. I know I can think of a lot of my listeners, not everyone, but the certain ones would like this movie. So I could totally see this movie having a renaissance one day where like in 10 years, somebody just discovers it on some streaming service and said, have you ever seen this movie before? And it'll cause all this drama on Twitter or whatever social media site is big at the time. Like, oh my God, I can't believe this movie exists. You could not do this today, but there will be people that really love a movie like this. And again, it could only have existed in the late 90s. You can't make this movie now. It would never happen again. But there is an audience for stuff like this where a movie just just pushes the limits to the point where you probably shouldn't be doing that, but they still do, and you have to admire its audacity. Yes. And and for as often as I say that this is a movie of irredeemable people, mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways, too, though, th- most of them are not in any – the only bad people in this movie – are Christian Slater and Cameron Diaz. <laughs> and you could argue uh, Piven is kind of a hedonist and doesn't really, not cautious, but he's not evil. The only, uh, Boyd and Cameron Diaz, those are the two, and everyone else just pays the price for their actions. Yes, 100%. Um, so the, they don't necessarily need redeeming. Mm-hmm. It, you just can't be forced to care about them after some of the decisions they make. <laughs> well, I mean, you can make the argument. They're just regular people thrown into a situation that most normal people don't get thrown into. So, Exactly. I mean, honestly, if I'm ever in Vegas and I accidentally kill a hooker, I kind of know what to do now. So like, give the give the movie all the props there. Well, and you also know what not to do. <laughs> exactly. That's even more important. But, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of darkness here. Mm-hmm. But the the humor is done with care. <laughs> I'm going to say that. Just like the little things that we picked up, like Mortal Kombat in the background. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
or the little old woman looking for her cushion. That was great. Like, there's all these little details that this movie takes place in a world. And all of it, you have to like absurd things <laughs> and dark things both at the same time. Because, like, when Christmas Slater punches that security guard in the chest with that corkscrew, I'm like, is his chest paper mache? <laughs> it does get through the breastbone rather quickly. Yeah, like, just thunk. <laughs> <laughs> That's one hell of a corkscrew. Yes, and that is the moment where I go, like, the woman getting hung on a hook. <laughs> yeah, I don't think a robe hook would go through the head, personally. No, but I, it didn't. I was like, okay, what if he did it real hard? <laughs> what that when he punched the security guard in the chest, and then it it just blew right through. I was like, oh my god! So there's physics don't work the same way in this world. What we really need is a an episode of MythBusters where they impale a hooker on a robe hook to see if it actually would work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like there, I'm, I'm going to need a certain amount of sus- suspension of disbelief for this movie. Okay, well, let's just say there's there's a lot of darkness, but it's very artfully done. Well, that's the absurdity. The darkness came 30 seconds later when they let this man die in a bathroom. And I'm like, oh, and that's next. <laughs> yeah, once that happens, you're like, where is this movie going from here? I, I honestly do remember that from my first viewing. Like when that guard dies, because they didn't hint at that in the trailers. They just know about the dead prostitute. Then the guard, di- guard dies, and now you're on your toes for the rest of this movie. Like, where is this movie going to go? You don't really know. And that's kind of a neat feeling when you have no idea what this movie's capable of. Like, yeah, it, it, it's one twist after another, but it get, yes, it leads you down this progressively darker and more de- dense path. <laughs> I feel a little icky watching this movie. I feel a little more icky enjoying it. But, you know, as as Boyd said, we're all conspirators now. We're all in this together. Yes. And despite in the beginning of the movie, we have two murders mm-hmm. in about 40 minutes. More happens in the last 10 minutes of this movie than the first two acts. <laughs> just all bam. It just starts coming at you. <laughs> And I'm just thinking, I, I cannot believe for the life of me, I, I laugh at this every now, even even now when I watch this movie, I'll still laugh, that they end on a shot of a three-legged dog hopping around. <laughs> like, <laughs> how many movies would have the stones to end on a handicapped dog? <laughs> One. <laughs> All right, I think we've we've talked about this movie enough. I, I feel icky, but I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad we'd finally talked about it. And I finally got you on staff picks. You're a guest I've wanted to have for uh, a while, so... Thank you for coming on and talking about a tough movie to talk about. Yes, I appreciate it. And I really enjoyed this movie because I'm I, I'm one of the good guys. But it this movie is just hilarious. And more people need to see it. <laughs> because as dark as it is, as dark as it is, you know, like, you know um, what Stalin said about, about dark humor? <laughs> no, what did he say? It's like food. Not everybody gets it. (laughs) That's great. No wonder I picked you for this podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. So, yeah, I'll let you go so we can probably both go take a shower. (laughs) Yeah, and I I will warn people, or not warn people, but I will tip people off here. If you want a good laugh, go on the Internet Movie Database and read the user reviews of very bad things. 
you will see a lot of 10 stars and one stars and almost nothing in the middle. Yes, there's your homework for this evening. All right, well, thank you, Jericho, for stopping by. You're welcome, and you have a good night, sir. All right, and uh, again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Stay away from the bachelor parties. Bye.